0: From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is about acquiring emerging technologies. If it's true that every company is becoming a technology company, then coming up with that technology can happen in many ways. Sometimes, it's homegrown, but other times, acquiring technologies and startups is a frequent course of action, not just for the parent company, but for funding innovation as well. Two words for you, better building. My guest is Jeff Vogel, head of the Software Strategy Group for EY Parthenon. This podcast is sponsored by EY Parthenon. Welcome, Jeff. Glad to be here. So you've been working in private equity for years and have more than three decades of experience as an entrepreneur and an executive in a software and technology. Can you paint a picture of the current software economy?
1: Sure. So, you know, I, I might start by uh, de- you know defining uh, what we mean by software economy. So. This term that we define really refers to um, software companies, so so that's pretty clear to company to uh, people. Companies that sell or license software, you know, that could be on-premises, um, old-school software, could be more modern SaaS-based software as a service software. But then there's a whole new slew of companies that that people might think of as tech-enabled services, services businesses that that aren't selling or licensing software that are selling you some business or consumer service, but powering it with software. So people obviously know of companies in um, you know, marketing technology, in online search, in recruiting, in transportation that enable their services with software, but, but they're not selling software. So, so those companies, particularly if, if those companies differentiate on the software, so they're not just using third-party off-the-shelf software to deliver their service, but they have hundreds of software engineers, dozens or more patents, tens of millions of lines of code, and they're developing proprietary software that powers their business service. And it's actually how they differentiate, even though they're not licensing software. So this collection of companies that's either selling software or selling business services that's enabled by software you know that's attempting to differentiate on that software is what we call the software economy. And these software economy companies share in common those, those things I mentioned. Lots of software engineers, lots of code, often intellectual property, patents and trade secrets behind that code and attempting to to differentiate by the way that uh, technology manifests itself to customers or enables a business service to be different, more efficient, faster, better, sometimes uh, cheaper.
0: That's very helpful to get a view of the entire ecosystem there. So at EY Parthenon, you help private equity companies with technology acquisitions, As an industry, how does private equity work versus, say, a a basic acquisition of one company that acquires another?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Good, good question there. So, you know, when you think about a traditional acquisition, let's say one tech company buying another, you know, there there could be three or four sort of families of, of theses. Uh, driving that acquisition. It could be vertical integration, right? Buy one of our suppliers and integrate it and and take a middleman out. It could be cross-sell and TAM, total addressable market expansion. We want to buy something that's adjacent to where we are And we'll achieve synergy because we can cross-sell it through our customers, through our channels, through our salespeople, and vice versa. It could be new market entry. We want to enter a market, and it's going to take us too long and cost us too much money to do that organically. So we want to acquire into it, or or it could be some form of transformation. We're trying to transform our company over a period of years from, from one type of business to another. And those are all types of acquisitions That are done, you can usually put them into those three or four buckets. And then it follows that there's often some synergy because of those theses. It could be revenue synergy, right? Cross sell is a revenue synergy. We're going to get more revenue than the two companies combined because of the ability to cross sell. Could be uh, a cost synergy. Could be that we have redundant products and we don't need both of them. We can make all the customers just as happy by eliminating the redundant capabilities and presumably having you know, more efficient product development, product marketing, uh, go-to-market organizations. And even when you don't see those obvious synergies, typically if you're doing anything at scale, there's always back office synergy. I don't need two HR organizations. I don't need two finance organizations. I don't need two um, marketing communications organizations. There's usually some synergy there. So you know, tech on tech or company on company, you, you can often, often think through with that lens. Now, private equity, of course, where it's just a financial buyer or private equity firm buying a company. None of those theses that require you know two companies exist, at least in the initial acquisition. So, when the private equity company first buys a tech company, you know they're going to have a thesis that's based on belief in the product and the company and their ability to achieve a return on investment on that. And private equity firms are you know to be upper quartile. You know they're looking for twenty percent net IRR over some period of time um, in order to do that. So that, so there's significant hurdle rate. They're paying top dollar for these companies, yet they have to achieve top return. So they they need you know to believe in the market, that there's room to grow in that market or, or room to expand the market, believe in the company's ability to execute or believe that they're coming with a transformation thesis, that they're going to fundamentally change what the company does and how it does it in order to recognize their return. So, th- so there, there's a pretty high bar and some of those synergies that M&A has are not available, at least in the first acquisition. Now, it's pretty common that after that first acquisition, a private equity firm might develop a thesis that's about acquiring more companies. And those subsequent acquisitions, okay, some people call that a platform build or or tuck-ins, you know, might have a thesis that that's more in line with what you know the tech on tech examples illustrate.
0: So interestingly, once one technology company is bought, then a a portfolio could be possibly assumed, et cetera, and it, it paves the way for more investment
1: often so so since you mentioned that often that that's becoming more prevalent today because the private equity firms are paying up and they're you just buy the company believe in the market and the company thesis sometimes isn't enough to get their return they need to add scale and sort of dollar average down. In other words, if I'm paying 20 times EBITDA and you know seven times revenue for the first deal, and I know that it's going to be hard to make my return on that, I may need to go find some tuck-ins and some other deals where I can start recognizing some of the synergies that strategics have available to them and sort of bring that that multiple down that first deal might be done at those multiples maybe you know subsequent deals are done at you know 60% of those multiples and your average multiple winds up being you know somewhere in between and and that's pretty common these days particularly as firms are are paying up you know for the initial platform
0: so what are some of those differences between evaluating mature companies and startups because that's got to be some kind of specialized skill
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, sometimes um, uh, there's a little joke in the industry, right, that the earlier stage you are, the easier it is to raise money. And one reason is there's less to diligence, Hmm. you know, so, um, you know, that's why diligence in the venture capital world looks very different than diligence in the private equity world. There's actually less to diligence, there's a little more of term sheets quote on the back of a napkin, a lot of venture capital is relationship based, it's believing in the team. Because one thing they teach you at venture capital school is the business plan that you invest in won't be the one that a company is ultimately successful and so you're really betting on the team. You're betting on the, the team's ability to pivot and navigate and find, you know, the eventual path because that first one, you know, for early stage companies is probably not where they're going to wind up being successful. So there's not a lot to diligence and, and there is market risk and there is product risk. You know, those are two big risks that, that you take in, in early stage investing. You, mo- you move over into, um, you know, later stage and, and mature companies, markets probably defined, the competitive set is probably defined. Mind. And, and there's probably a product that's doing something because these companies have substantive revenue. Now, there might be a next generation of the product. The product might be under competitive threat. The product might need to be transformed. It, it might have what we call a technical debt and it, it, it might have a re-architecture or a replatforming. It might be an on-premises product that has to move to the cloud and become a SaaS product. All of those are things that that could be uh, roadmap objectives right, of, of a company that that you would want to diligence because they are essentially expenses that you're signing up for, things that the company has to do to maintain or improve its um, market position and its financial profile over time that, that you're betting on and you want to do diligence those really well you know we call this technical you know technical debt would be sort of off balance sheet liabilities right it's um, like deferred maintenance on a house so these mature products have lots of it they're not on the balance sheet so i can't read the financial statement and say you owe that bank a million dollars but under the covers you know in between the lines there's a body of technology and that technology needs tender love and care and maintenance you know just like a home or a building might and in diligence, you want to try to understand that. You want to try to understand the market needs. You want to try to understand the competitive set and the the, the competitive landscape and the roadmap that the company has for navigating that and, you know, see if that aligns with your your management teams and your and your ability to execute. So we like to say all these companies have risks and a lot of diligence is about aligning the risks that are there with those that that you as a private equity firm are well positioned to undertake. In other words, some firms like you know financial are willing to live with some financial risk or some product risk or some market risk or some talent risk. But other risks, they're like, no, 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 we don't take market risk, but you have some talent risk we can help because we're great at recruiting and retaining talent. So mm-hmm. a lot of it isn't that there's no risks in the deal, but it's understanding them, attempting to quantify them, and then, you know, culturally and, and sort of DNA-wise, what are the type of risks that that your firm is well suited to taking on and, and aligns with you know, the, the culture and DNA of the firm versus what risks are you just can't touch. And, and, you know, for some folks that are newer to tech private, you know, if you've been a private equity firm investing in industrials and now you're coming into tech, you know, there's a lot of product and market risks because markets mm-hmm. change quickly and products have to change quickly. And those might be risks that some of the newer firms investing in tech don't take, you know, as, as compared to some, uh, you know, firms that have been around and, and been and getting used to you know, software economies for the last 10 or 15 years and, and are, are better suited to understanding, you know, the disruption and opportunity that comes along with uh, software investing.
0: You've mentioned a little bit of this, of why non-technical companies would want to acquire emerging technology companies, integration to product portfolios, cross-selling, etc. But what is the potential value of these acquisitions in terms of that innovation, profit, and talent?
1: You know, we see a lot of this. You know, non-tech companies trying to become more software enabled and software driven, and, and sort of enter the software economy. And that could be, uh, you know, for really good reasons. That that software is good for their customers. It it makes some business process. Easier, faster, cheaper, smoother, higher quality, more automated, but it, it, it could also be for financial ones, right? Software enjoys relatively low, low friction, you know, to grow and enter opportunity for high growth. Like people see these crazy growth companies in the software economy all the time. And in other sectors of the economy, you know, it's it's hard to grow at those rates. High gross margins in software, right? Cost of goods is, is a pretty small percentage of, of revenue and what you sell products for. We have a lot of rule of 40 or 50 or 60 companies. If, if you don't know what that is, a uh, rule of 40 is when you add together the growth rate of a company with the EBITDA margin of the company. And 40 used to be great. If you're growing at 20% and delivering 20% EBITDA margins, that's pretty good, 40. But we're actually seeing rule of 50 and 60 companies in software today. So combining those two, those are are typically trade-offs, right? I can grow faster, if I invest more in my profits, I'm a little less profitable or I can grow slower and have more profit. But when I can do both in a reasonable percentage and I'm and I'm rule 40, 50, or 60, that that's um, you know, pretty strong. And we see a lot of those companies in software high multiples. People love that because it means higher exits and and uh, lower cost of capital when they're raising money. We don't require a lot of working capital. We don't have a lot of factories, we don't have a lot of inventory. And so so managing the balance sheet is a lot easier. So a lot of people wanna are, you know, are jealous of the metrics and low friction. And, and the sort of acid light nature of the software economy and, and want to try to make their companies start start looking like that. And, uh, you know, that that's why we see a lot of these companies either transforming themselves or starting to acquire software companies and, and attempt to Garner some of the benefits of of being um, in the software economy. Now the other side of the coin, of course, is there's always a little bit of be careful what you wish for because you come on over to the software economy. And mm-hmm. what's different over here? Well, you know, you can you can go from zero to 100 pretty quickly. You can establish yourself. You could you could you know not be a company one year and be a major player you know and dominate the market six years later in multi-billion dollar markets. And we've all seen that, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley. But the other side of it is you can go from 100 to zero pretty darn quickly. And you're mm-hmm. seeing some of those companies play out today also. So there is another side of the coin and you have to have the stomach for it. And it has to be, um, you have to have the risk profile for it and you have to have the DNA for it and you have to have the talent for it. You know, so, so it is somewhat different from you know, running uh, you know, non-software economy uh, businesses. But th- those are the reasons why we see you know, these non-tech companies starting to acquire tech companies and, and enter uh, the software economy.
0: So, um, just so everyone's clear, EBITDA is Earnings Before Interest, Taxes, Depreciation, and Modernization. But, you know, we're talking about indicators and what makes a technology company a strong acquisition. Without a crystal ball, without knowing what those successful companies may be, the zero to 100 and beyond, what's a good example? Of, of, uh, of how companies can actually start looking at uh, some indicators? Well,
1: well, you know, something, you know, somewhat, uh, like if you're six, 12 months into it, you know, things that I look for, you now, let's say you got a non-tech company acquiring a tech company, or, or even a large tech company acquiring a small tech company. You know, when you enter the software economy, there are a lot of things that are that are different. Um, one of them is talent, you know, the way people think, the types of people that you hire, the culture of these software economy companies, and, and the great sign, you know, is how many of the key people are staying around, and more importantly, what they're roles are in the company. So when you see companies acquired and the executives from the acquired companies start getting promoted and taking on larger roles in the acquiring organization, you know, that's usually a sign that, that the cultures are aligning, the things that the acquired company brings to the table are valued by the acquirer, that cultures are integrating, the benefits, even if they take longer because of integration of products and technology and channels and markets um, might take a little longer. But, it, but if you see sort of the talent integrating in that way, I'd say that's a pretty good sign because software, you know, is intangible IP, and it's very much, uh, you know, tied to the people who build it and maintain it. If you have talent drains, you know, due to culture, compensation, or other things, um, after an acquisition, uh, that's usually, you know, the leading indicator that you know the thesis is going to go um, up in smoke. So that, that's the first thing I look for. Now, in a private equity deal, you don't quite see that because the company is pretty much the company. In some cases, the only thing that changes is the board of directors, especially if a company was well run and a private equity firm wants to keep it that way. Um, There may not be a lot of change and things may just go on as normal. The only thing that changes is the uh, shareholders. But when it's, you know, an operating company being acquired, uh, you know, talent is a good place to look for leading indicators.
0: With a growing number of companies attracted to the technology landscape, as you have described, it seems like a, a crowded market. So how can a company differentiate itself to stay competitive and be discerning when looking for investments?
1: Yeah, so, so I think getting that those theses right, like just being a holding company and buying something is probably not the best approach, although there are holding company models um, out there. You know, the doubling down on, on the strategy and the, you know, a some people might call it an M&A thesis or the integration thesis. So, you know, let's take examples vertical integration. If you're going to vertically integrate an acquire channel, acquire a supplier, that could have significant synergy, could have significant differentiation. And if you, you know, kind of take the time to put that strategy out, find the right companies to acquire that fit the thesis and make sure you fund the integration, right? Uh, integration is not just, you know, a bunch of rows on spreadsheets, but it's actually, you know, getting on the ground, in the weeds, figuring out the operating models, people, the business processes, the tools uh, that are needed, you know, to successfully integrate, to see your thesis through. Those can be differentiating and those, those can be, be game changers for companies, both, you know, in the marketplace, you know, and on uh, the P&L.
0: And you've mentioned this earlier, which is the unknown risk, high reward kind of aspect of acquiring technology companies, but the new capabilities and talents, you know, is something that the, the, a new company can offer. So what are the most common obstacles that companies face then?
1: You know, I touched on this before. It'll be a little redundant, but but I would say, you know, the first is, you know, you're coming into the software economy. It's new to you. Companies can go from zero to 100 pretty quickly, but they can go from 100 to zero. You know, the landscape is littered with companies that were high flyers, leaders um, in their space that are now gone and out of business. You know, we're, were basically acquired in fire sales, and and somebody's you know running out the maintenance long tail on some of these companies. So you know, you've seen that in you know old school desktop publishing. You've seen that in old school CRM and ERP, you've seen that in, um, you know, various vertical applications serving, uh, you know, vertical businesses, you know, all those sectors have had, you know, once dominant players that, you know, didn't innovate, maybe lost their key talent, you know, maybe had an upside down balance sheet, um, were over leveraged and, you know, basically disappeared and, you know, went, went off the map as quick as they came on, you know, they again, they you can go from not being a company you know, to being the high flyer leader in the space in five, six, seven years, and just as quickly, possibly more quickly go to zero. Um, so, it's, so it's really important that, uh, you know, folks acquiring these companies or investing them understand that risk and, and realize that, you know, sometimes drastic things have to be done you know, to to keep these companies, um, you know, growing and, and high flying, even after you think they've reached their apex. And then the others, cultures don't integrate. Again, touched on this before. Talent's a key thing. Software economy companies tend to have different cultures than than businesses from from other parts of the economy. And it, it's pretty important that that's recognized in their strategies for dealing with it. Or else, you know, the talent, you know, won't be as innovative. Will have high attrition risk cause, you know, other people all leave and start a competitor. We've seen that play out, right? Mm. Company gets acquired, Mm -hmm. you know, people run out their non-compete or their retention bonus for a year. Then they all go and start another company and that other company, you know, does it even better, right? One thing you'll find in software is the, the first guys to do it are usually not the winners. In fact, often you may not know the know the first guys or gals. The second time around is usually better. Why? Because you learn from your mistakes. You're better yet. You learn from someone else's mistakes. You have a model to work from, right? The first time, you know, you're designing a mobile phone, you're the first guys, you got to figure it all out. You know, the second time you're learning from the guys who got it like 60% right, but 40% wrong the time before, you know, in the web browser space, it wasn't the first guys who won. In the mobile phone space, it wasn't the first guys who won. In the desktop computing space, it wasn't the first guys who won. It's usually the second or third. So that that that's a pretty common theme, and often it's, it's people who were on those first teams that learned, and they go start the second teams, and you know, if you have that talent and you let it walk out the door, you know, shame on you. So, you know, trying to kind of be the ones that put yourself out of business versus letting your former employees figure out how to do it is always a good idea. And I think the best companies do that. You know, they form teams, they uh, give them some autonomy and they say, can you go build the next generation of our product rather than a competitor go build it? And that's how companies, you know, kind of reinvent themselves and, you know, mitigate the risk of the talent culture or the innovation culture, you know, kind of walking out the door or, or springing up somewhere else.
0: It certainly helps to have that history as perspective now, but looking forward, you know, into the future, how will private equity help shape the technology landscape in the next few years?
1: So, I mean, look, it, this this is, um, you know, a little bit the Wild West. Private equity has never been so dominant in tech. I mean, it's hard to believe, but if you go back 12, 13, 14 years, maybe even 10, there was almost no private equity investing in tech, right? Private equity firms didn't understand tech. They didn't understand all the things I mentioned, why the high gross margins, why the high growth rates. I, you know, I'm scared of companies going from hundred to zero. I know they can go from zero to hundred. I don't understand all this intangible IP that, that I can't touch and feel. It's not in the factory. It's not in inventory. There was very little investing in tech. And then, you know, there were, there were some deals done 10, 15 years ago that were the first tech deals, you know, sort of big take privates and then more firms got into it. And then some specialized firms started doing only tech and now tech, you know, private equity is a, is a big part of our economy on the capital market. Some, some numbers that might be interesting to people in last year in 2021, there were 129 tech IPOs for $70 billion and uh, actually a small fraction of that in 2022 so far, only uh, 19 deals for 1.6, you know, because of the market corrections. Then, if we look at buyouts, there were almost as many in 21. There were 139 buyouts, actually a little more for $50 billion. But in 2022, this market actually was so white hot at the beginning of the year that there were 99 deals for $60 billion. So there were 80 more tech take privates than there were IPOs in 2022. That uh, represents 43% of the deals by value and, and 19 by number were sort of in the tech economy. So tech is dominating the capital markets and private equity and tech. Are becoming a substantive portion of the capital markets, more so in, you know, the the drastic change has been on, on the private side. And people realize like there, there are companies now that have gone private, public, private, public, private, public, sort of bounce back and forth because there are things you can do as a private company that you can't do as a public company. You know, the court of the court of financials makes it hard to do things like a SaaS transformation to go from big upfront contracts to recurring revenue makes it hard to do, you know, big investments in new products, makes it hard to spend a lot of. Money money on R&D versus, you know, or a lot of money on R versus the D, you know, development and maintenance. A lot of these are things that people find are easier to do as a private company, outside of, you know, having to report every quarter and disclose everything you're doing to the public. Thus, you, you are seeing this cycle that private equity is just a pretty meaningful part of the capital markets for tech companies. Overall, And are doing bigger and bigger deals. You know, we worked on a $17 billion deal, and I think we're going to see a lot more deals in that size uh, neighborhood. Over the years to come, and while private equity has been slow, the last six months or so with the correction in the public markets, interest rates going up, what have you, there's a lot of pent-up demand. There's still a lot of money on the sidelines in private equity that's going to be invested, and private equity pops back, which, which will likely happen at some point here in the first half of 23. It's, it's probably going to come back with a vengeance, and I think we'll see the effect of private equity on the capital markets for tech companies be as significant as ever later in uh, 23.
0: Completely fascinating, Jeff. Thank you so much for being here on the Business Lab today.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: That was Jeff Vogel, head of the Software Strategy Group for EY Parthenon, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the Global Director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and you can also find us in print, on the web, and at events each year around the world. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Jiro Studios. Thanks for listening.